Good afternoon and thanks for being with us on this Friday, another busy show. We are going to talk more about that policy when it comes to attire at swimming pools and some more details about that coming forward from the Vancouver Park Board. Also coming up on the show in Surrey, the use of portables on school grounds as Surrey residents and the school board there deal with a growing population. Why the school board says the government can no longer ignore the needs of that city. We are starting, though, with something, again, that sounds like it is right out of a Hollywood film. The container contained high-value shipment. It did contain gold and other items of monetary value. The total worth for the property is estimated at just over $20 million. Therefore, for the traveling public that are concerned about coming and flying out, they should have no concern. We do not consider this a public safety matter. Operations are running smoothly. That from Peel Police, who are investigating, again, after more than $20 million worth of gold and other valuables were stolen from Pearson Airport earlier this week. Police not saying anything about details or possible suspects, but certainly this is getting a lot of attention. And joining us to talk more about how this could have even happened is Duncan D., a former COO at Air Canada. Duncan, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Jill. When you first heard about this and started to hear these details of a heist and gold and other valuables taken from a cargo container, what went through your mind? Look, I, I started thinking about Ocean's Eleven. You know, <laughs> this was this is uh, really something right out of Hollywood um, in terms of a plot line. And uh, you know, having been involved in the shipment of high value goods in the past. It's really something that is extremely unusual. That's something that I've really never heard of happening, certainly not nothing of this magnitude. And so, um, you know, will require quite a bit of investigation to figure out how exactly this happened. And like we said, too, we're not getting a ton of details at this point as police are investigating. I know the uh, Toronto Sun was reporting that they have uh, looked at a confidential memo that stated that the bank in question is TD, that the airline is Air Canada. Uh, There are a lot of questions about something like this happening and that perhaps they would have needed help uh, from somebody or some people on the inside. Does that seem to make sense? Yeah, I think um, so. I'm. I would be speculating at this point, like most people are. But I would. Uh, I would think that this would require not just a lot of coordination and planning, but also uh, some information uh, on the inside. First of all, when uh, shipments of high value goods are tendered to a carrier, most often uh, carriers, the the staff at the carriers don't really even know what's being uh, moved. You know, these are. Uh, you know, box. They're provide. They're they're, they're placed in um, secure um, facilities that uh, airlines control. But that the individuals loading the cargo, it's like they don't know what the contents of the bags that you've packed are. You know, these are not uh, things that uh, people know um, what's inside the containers. So, uh, you know, for this to happen, for it to happen as quickly as it did there had to have been some level of information that was given to the individuals who took this. And let me, first of all, um, <clears throat> mention the fact that the, the theft took place at a warehouse that was actually outside the control of the airport authority. So while it happened at the airport, it was at a, at a warehouse which was outside their control. 
Oh, all right. And so would have different uh, type of types of security or, or be under a different uh, because it's in a different area? Absolutely. Um, Jill, you know, when you're talking about the passenger side of the airport, when you're talking about the cargo facilities that are under the airport's control, that's a whole other level of security and monitoring. And uh, this outside warehouse that is uh, outside the control of the airport authority would appear to be, um, you know, outside the purview of the regular primary security um, means that the airport has in place to prevent things like this from happening. And Duncan, you mentioned something. So that people working in this area, this cargo area, uh, they wouldn't know specifically what's inside the different cargo containers. But but somebody must know, or there must be a, a certain number of people must know what's in uh, containers as far as weight and knowing what's going on a plane. Absolutely. I mean, there's, uh, a, you know, for high value shipments, you would have um, uh, some smaller group of individuals who know exactly what is being shipped. But what I'm talking about are the individuals working on the ramp, unloading and loading um, the cargo. Those individuals wouldn't necessarily be in the know as to what it is that they're loading onto aircraft beyond uh, basic things like, you know, who the destination, where the destination is, what the weight of the um, uh, shipment is so that they can ensure there's proper weight and balance on the aircraft. But, you know, the details as to what's inside those boxes or inside people's luggage is not something that most of the staff working around the aircraft, near the aircraft, would necessarily be aware of. But obviously, in this case, somebody knew, somebody knew when the, this cargo arrived and somebody knew when it would be transported to this warehouse where it was eventually uh, uh, stolen. Right. And would that be a normal procedure as well? Because, again, some of some of the other information, and this is in the Toronto Sun, uh, sources told the, the reporter there that the amount of gold stolen, which was about 3,600 pounds, uh, which would have a value of more than $100 million U.S. Uh, for U.S. US dollars. But uh, police are saying that the amount stolen was just over $20 million. Uh, so that would mean that thieves only took a portion of that shipment that they they didn't take the entire thing uh, but i mean it even is that would that be a normal procedure to to have something that valuable uh, sitting in a warehouse you know i mean the, that's the part that is the biggest mystery the fact that it was uh, uh, brought to this warehouse off uh, the airport property and that um once it was there there were there were there was, there was seemingly seemingly no security you know, if any uh, passenger uh, looking at some aircraft being loaded up um, when they're when they're um, flying themselves, we'll see sometimes that they'll see armored vehicles on the uh, on the tarmac of of aircraft, and so you know those aircraft are clearly offloading something of value. But in this case, it seems like the um, luggage containers or the cargo containers were simply towed over to this uh, warehouse, and from there it was stolen from the public area of the warehouse, which makes the whole thing even more peculiar. So obviously something went awfully wrong uh, in this case where people who were the wrong people knew what to get, when to get it, and how much uh, they were uh, taking.
And, and I understand as well, looking at the number of, of, of airports or looking at the top cargo airports in the world, that, that Pearson is one of the top ones with, with three main cargo facilities. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff going through that airport. Uh, I, I wonder if that would make it more difficult because there's so much or that, that people could try and fade into the obscurity a bit more, kind of, kind of hide in, in plain sight. Well, I think like um, uh, the Port of Vancouver or YVR, you know, many of these ports of entries tend to be targets for um, criminal elements. You know, whether you're talking about high value imports or exports, but also for things like drug smuggling. You know, the the reason why drugs uh, enter the country is they enter through these ports of entry, which um, are targets by organized crime and criminal elements. And so you know, these, um, this particular case speaks to the fact that obviously the police forces um, have to be right on top of their game to ensure that these types of uh, thefts and this type of activity doesn't occur. And what do you think that the kind of scuttlebutt would be then when it came to light that this had happened uh, for people uh, just just reacting to this? I was doing a little bit of, of uh, looking at if this had happened before. There was a gold heist at Pearson Bank in 1952. But my guess is uh, this is pretty big news once it started to come to light, uh, the details. Absolutely. I mean, this is huge news. It's definitely the talk, not just of the airport community, but you know, um, I'm in Boston right now, and it made the the uh, TV news locally here. The fact that this was a heist, uh, a made-for-TV heist, you know, in terms of the value, where it happened. Um, and uh, until we know exactly what happened, I think there's going to be a lot of speculation as to how this could possibly have occurred in a place like, uh, like Toronto. But, you know, the fact that uh, Pearson handles so much cargo, um, you know, makes it a target, as you, as you mentioned earlier. And so... The fact that this, the last time something of this magnitude happened in the 1950s probably speaks to the fact that things are not, um, you know, uh, as big a risk as, uh, as uh, the news uh, of this theft is um, making it out to be and that things, um, you know, probably function relatively well. And one other question, just going back to what you'd said about the fact that this did happen at a warehouse, not in the, in the part of the airport, kind of the passenger part, not the main terminal. This happened at a cargo warehouse. But even so, being that it's part of the airport complex, surely whoever did this at some point uh, would have to either would have been caught on, on security cameras or would have had to swipe a security pass to access certain areas. Most definitely. I mean, you know, the the airport perimeter is highly monitored. So, um, and, and, you know, as you mentioned, particularly in the passenger terminal buildings and in the buildings that are under direct control of the GTA, we'll have to see whether or not the warehouse in question was also actively monitored. And if it was, whether, you know, the people that did this knew where they, they wouldn't be as monitored as, um, you know, they would be elsewhere. Because, you know, this has the hallmarks of somebody who knew exactly what to do, when to do it, and how to get away with it. And, you know, this amount of um, high-value goods have suddenly disappeared into thin air. So this is not, um, you know, done by some kids who broke, break into cars and uh, still look, looking for loose change. This is uh, uh, an organized, well-planned um, heist that took place in the country's largest airport.
All right. Well, it is so interesting, even with the few details that we have about this at this point. Duncan, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us with your perspective on this. Thank you so much, Joe. Thanks for being with us on this Friday afternoon. Well, we have been talking a little bit about this, and a bit later on in the show, we're going to check in with another Park Board Commissioner. But it is one of the motions that is coming forward to the Park Board, and it has to do with appropriate attire for anybody that is at one of the public pools in Vancouver. And it clarifies what attire is appropriate, bathing suit, swim trunks, a board shorts, a rash guard, wetsuit, burkini, uh, things that would make sense to be on the list of appropriate attire. And also talks about not wearing bulky clothes that could take on a lot of water, that could weigh you down and could make a rescue more difficult. Well, we wanted to know more about this and how big of an issue this is. So joining us to talk more about it is Linnea Grace, who is the executive director of the Life Saving Society, BC and Yukon Division. And Linnea, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us about this today. Thank you so much for having me today. This is a policy that's getting a a fair amount of attention. Uh, Some of it, uh, people kind of questioning why the park board needs to actually have a policy when it comes to appropriate attire for swimming. But some of the issues that were raised were... uh, clothing, pieces of clothing that could potentially be dangerous or could get in the way of rescue. That's why we wanted to talk to you about this today. Uh, How important is it from a life-saving point of view that people who are in pools in public swim areas are wearing proper swimming attire? Well, you know, the BC pool regulation does state that, you know, people need to be in clean and appropriate bathing attire and that, you know, pool management determines what that is. From our perspective, you know, we ask that our lifeguards um, across the province and territory are rescue ready, so they are dressed appropriately to rescue others. Um, and what we recommend people to wear when they're in the water are, um, you know, as uh, folks are recommending, attire that people can meet, move freely that doesn't impede um, their movements in the water. Um, you know, anything that is really heavy, like jeans or um, you know, a larger clothing items are not recommended because they can weigh you down in the water. Right. If they're that kind of, uh, if they're bigger and bulky or, or that kind of fabric that's uh, overly absorbent? Yes. Uh, you mentioned the, the BC pool rules. So are there kind of overarching rules or are there regulations already in place that, that are, are in place for all public swimming pools? Uh, yes. So the BC pool regulation does state that um, patrons need to wear clean and appropriate bathing attire, and then that is determined by pool management. Okay. Uh, so is there, even, is there really even a need for the, the Vancouver Park Board to come out with its own policy if we already have uh, the, the BC pool regulation? Uh, you know, I, I can't comment on that, um, but it sounds like their policy is in line with that BC pool regulation. All right. And when they have put out the, the list of appropriate attire for swimming, uh, it includes things, bathing suit, which, which seems pretty obvious, uh, but also to kind of uh, to make sure it's, it's inclusive and that people feel comfortable. It also includes uh, things like if somebody wants to wear a burkini or a swim hijab, leggings or a tunic, a rash guard or a wetsuit. Would those all kind of fall in line as well with the, the, the bigger rules when it comes to, to pool regulations? 
Yes, of course. Any of those items, you know, bathing suits, trunks or board shorts, um, the bikini, as you mentioned, or a swim hijab, um, a rash guard, all of those are perfectly acceptable. And when we, if there is a scenario where somebody's maybe not wearing the, the proper attire, uh, how difficult does it make it or how much more challenging can that be for a lifeguard if they're in that position where they do have to help that person? Uh, well, it certainly can make things more challenging. Um, you know, uh, our lifeguards, um, you know, may come uh, across situations where people are dressed in any any number of types of outfits or clothing, um, and they need to be, you know, rescue ready for those situations. Um, but, uh, you know, if somebody is wearing a large, heavy pair of jeans, for example, um, that does weigh that person down in the water, it makes it that much more difficult um, for a rescue. Um, that's not to say that they can't be rescued, um, but, you know, again, are they... Is it impeding their own movement in the water? Is it contributing to um, their struggle in the water because they're not wearing the appropriate attire? Right. Okay. Can it possibly or potentially go the other way as well in that one of the the park board commissioners was quoted uh, as saying that this also... Um, it, it, a part of being inclusive is perhaps if people aren't wearing enough, which has been a bit of a, a conversation of late with Edmonton uh, bringing in its policy that uh, being topless is fine in Edmonton pools. Uh, but is the, does it go that way as well in that if somebody's not perhaps wearing enough of a bathing suit, that can also make it a, a more challenging uh, rescue? You know, that is really uh, up to... Um you know, each organization, uh, park board, et cetera, to determine what is appropriate for their patrons to be wearing. Um, again, you know, we would recommend that people who are swimming are wearing um, appropriate bathing attire. It does not impede their movement. Um, certainly, you know, it would not prevent people from being rescued. But again, we would recommend that Uh, In line with that pool regulation, people are wearing, uh, you know, uh, clean and appropriate attire. That goes as well in the messaging of of having swimming lessons and being able to swim at a certain level uh, to even go into the pool to make sure that it's safe for everybody. Absolutely. And that's why we recommend that children under the age of seven are within an arm's reach of their parents um, or guardians or responsible adult at, at all times while in pool areas. And of course, you know, swim lessons are such an important part of water safety and education. Um, so we do recommend um, that families enroll their children in swim lessons, um, you know, from parent and taught all the way through their teen years in our Swim for Life program and life-saving programs. Well, Linnea, it's uh, certainly it has been a topic of discussion in the past few days. So thank you so much for joining us uh, for talking more about this. Appreciate your time today. Okay, thank you so much for having me. Well, in celebration of the UNESCO World Book and Copyright Day, which is coming up, it is on April 23rd, just a couple of days away, the U.S. Consulate General in Vancouver has been very busy donating new books to libraries right across the Metro Vancouver area. And Angela Gerard is joining us now, Public Diplomacy Chief with the U.S. Consulate General in Vancouver. Angela, I know it's been a very, very busy day for you, so thank you so much for taking a few minutes to talk with us. 
No, happy to speak with you. Well, and I know you. Uh, there are some. A lot of kids have been taking part in this as well, and and uh, Zachary and Nathan are with you. But to, before we uh, maybe get them to jump in, can you just explain a little bit about the book donations and what's been happening? Yeah, of course. So, well, one of the main things that the Department of State does around the world for us is really partner with international organizations like UNESCO, for example, to support learning. And so for, you know, my team's mission here in Vancouver, that really means connecting with local organizations and making a difference for them. And for World Book Day, that meant partnering with local libraries from across the region. And uh, you kind of touched on this, but where did the, all of the books come from that are being donated? Yeah, they're, they are purchased by the Department of State, so by the U.S. government. And then we provide them up as kind of a list of ones that we have. And they really range in topics from, you know, everything from, I think, some of the libraries picked Native Indigenous or sorry, Native American cooking to um, Black History with Jazz to um, quite a few children's books. So it's a whole range of different topics that, you know, really help to inform a different variety of topics uh, for, you know, the different libraries here. All right. And I don't know if Zachary or Nathan want to, to join in, but if so, do, do either Zach or Nathan, do they want to talk a little bit about what it was like to do all of the donations? Yes. Oh, hey, who am I talking to here? Nathan. Hi, Nathan. Uh, Nathan, tell me a bit about what it was like and donating all of the books. It was very fun. And did you get to, to meet the people when you donated the books, or did they get to pick which book that they wanted to, to get from you? We all have books. And this is Zachary. Oh, hi, Zachary. How are you? Good. Good. What was it like donating all of those books to the libraries? I love going on the sea bus and getting the book. <laughs> oh, very nice. I forgot that you got to go uh, on the sea bus. So, so you took the sea bus to go, and fi- to go over to one of the libraries and then give the books uh, after you went on the sea bus? Yes, we went to North Vancouver. Ah, and, and what was it like? So the sea bus was a big highlight of the day. That must have been really fun, doing that and then giving away and donating those books. We love seeing all the libraries. Very nice. Have you ever done this before, or is this new? Where we used to live in Arlington, yes. All right. Now, are you able to put uh, Angela? Are you able to put um, Angela back on the phone? Yes, I'm here. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you were, I think you were there the whole time. But it's so great. Uh, and, of course, riding on the sea bus is a highlight to, to, to do this and get around to the different libraries. Uh, how many libraries do you think you went to today? We went to three different libraries. There were, um, you know, we kind of put a call out across the region, and we got um, essentially Vancouver Public Library in particular um, was interested, as well as North Vancouver District Library and North Vancouver City Library. And is this something that you've done in the past as well as part of, of celebrating UNESCO World Book Day, or is this something new? No, this is so the consulate has done it in the past, like many years ago. Uh, the way my job works is that I, I rotate in every three years as a U.S. diplomat. So since I've been here, unfortunately, because of COVID, mm. we haven't had the opportunity. 
Um, so now that now that the restrictions are lifted, we really wanted to jump back into it and and show our engagement and, and do what we can a bit more. Oh, that's great. And, and you know what? It's one of those things, isn't it, that you wouldn't think of it as something that would be a casualty of, of the COVID rules and such. But certainly this would have fallen into it. So, uh, yeah, that must have been it must have been difficult knowing that it's such a popular program and, and not being able to do it. Yeah, we really do like to get out there, do book reading. I mean, our Consul General is great about being able to get out, do book readings and other programs that really engages the community. Um, and, I mean, that's one of the key reasons we're here, right? It's it's not just all um, high-level bilateral policy work. It's also about working one-on-one with, with individual Vancouverites and others um, across the region. All right. As well as the new- oh. oh. Yeah, well, it's so great that you're doing that. And uh, Zachary and Nathan uh, sound very excited about, well, the books and the C-Bus, which uh, is, uh, of course, they would be. Uh, Angela, thanks so much. I know it's a very busy day for you, so we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for being able to join us for a few moments. No, thank you for taking the time. We appreciate it. Anytime. Well, this sounds very familiar. We are taking a look at school spaces in Surrey and the trustees with the Surrey School Board are sending the government a strong letter saying that they can no longer be ignored when it comes to overcrowding in the district's schools. Well, joining me to talk a bit more about this is Terry Allen, Surrey School Board trustee. Thank you so much for being with us. You're more than welcome. Uh, This is something that it seems like every school year uh, we talk about the portables that are on Surrey school grounds, the overcrowding. How bad are things this year? Well, I think this year is an exceptional year. In the past years, Surrey has done reasonably well as far as uh, capital infrastructure uh, and announcements in this way. But this year... Uh, we received two additions, which will amount to 750 seats overall. Uh, we had enrollment growth this year of 2,200. That's a third of the students that came into Surrey. Uh, and so if that's the only capital that we're going to get for this year, it's simply uh, pushing us back and not forward, which this government uh, has done in, in past years. Hasn't this government also, though, uh, pledged to make funding in Surrey a priority and to get rid of the portables? Yes, but I think in all honesty, uh, getting rid of portables in Surrey is probably something I will never see in my lifetime. At this point in time, we have 361 portables on site Uh, And in the way growth is and the lack of capital funding, uh, we will probably reach the 400 plateau in two years. Is there any way, do you think, to stop that? Would would putting more money into this actually stop that from happening? Or is is it gone too far at this point? No, I mean, the reality is you have to build schools, right? And as we've said, you know, even if you were to build... Uh, one new high school and two elementary schools, that would only deal with uh, the increased enrollment for this year. I mean, we have to continue to move forward and not stand still. That really is the reason for the letter being sent to ministry and government and Treasury Board, that uh, ignoring the growth in Surrey is only compounding the problem. The problem is that Uh, As I've said to you, we have 361 portables 
with the expectation of moving to 400, and we've got 39 portable moves. Well, people need to understand that portable, the cost of portables comes straight out of operating. So all those millions of dollars that we've spent on portables should actually be going to the classroom. And this just simply uh, aggravates the situation to the point that uh, we cannot continue to afford to buy portables out of operating and uh, without some drastic uh, change to the way we do our budget. Can you talk a little bit about the numbers as well? Because I understand that part of the reason that this year is is so uh, dire as well, and one of the reasons for writing this letter to the Ministry of Education, uh, to the B.C. government, is that the enrollment numbers this year were actually more than double than what was anticipated. Well, in truth, we actually had allowed for 1,500 students, right? And in past years, because of COVID, it had been around... 850. So the rapid growth and with the expectation after we've met with the federal government is that enrollment isn't going to shrink. It's going to continue at the 2200 mark, probably for the foreseeable number of years. That's the problem. And just to let you know, and, and, and I'm sure you do know that if today the provincial government said, Okay, Mr. Allen, you're right. You need one new high school and two elementary schools. It needs to be said that if that was agreed to, not one student would walk through those doors within the next five years. That's how long it takes. And so you think about that and, and, and the dilemma we have over purchasing and replacing and moving portables, you can only see the problem. And the part of the, the, the motion we talked about at the board was the fact that we now don't have space for portables. So now we're looking at uh, the problem of stacking portables. Well, if you stack portables, then instead of just placing them on playgrounds and, and playing fields, you're then going to have to provide foundations for those portables. So the cost will accelerate and go through the roof. Hmm. And is it also the, the formula of the the population has to be there before the new schools are approved? And I know even in Surrey, some schools that have received approval, uh, they're, they're not even really, the, I, I know there's one I think that hasn't even broken ground yet, uh, another one under construction. Like you said, even after the approval, it's still several years away. Well, I mean, the previous government had the, the rules that, your school capacity had to be at 110% before you could even apply. That hasn't necessarily been the position that this government has taken, but it's there. It's on the books that you have to have, uh, your, your capacity has to exceed uh, what the school was, was originally intended to receive. So you're right, yes. Uh, what do you hope then as far as uh, this letter? This can't come as a huge surprise to the ministry, to uh, the B.C. government. What are you hoping that uh, by sending this letter, what are you hoping that this will accomplish? Well, I think, I think in truth what we're asking them to do is, is to review the uh, five-year capital plan from the Surrey School District and act in the appropriate manner. And I do want to add, you know, the, 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 bigger, the other piece of the big picture is we now have the sky drain cor corridor 
there isn't one school site or one school plan on that that corridor in our five-year plan because we didn't allow for it. It, it, it. You know, we don't get pre-warning that these things are going to happen. So not only is our five-year capital plan based on enrollment not being dealt with, we also have the added problem of the SkyTrain route and the fact that land that was a reasonable price is now going through the roof because developers have the expectation of huge amounts of dollars. And and you you mentioned something as well, like you said that there there's not the budget or that budget for portables is taking away money that should be going right to education, and there's not the space. So how does that how is that going to work if you're also uh, pretty sure that it's going to go to 400 portables that that's not going to stop anytime soon? Uh, if there isn't the budget and and more so not the space, how do you move forward with that? How do you accommodate to more and more students? Well, we will accommodate by by portables, but by purchasing more and more portables, exactly to your point, at the end of the day, the operating budget won't cover it. So you and me are smart enough to understand that that would result in some form of layoffs because there's, by law, we have to put in a, a balanced budget. So that really, at the end, if there's no relief on the cost of, portables, in other words, somebody paying for them, we'll have nowhere else to go but there. All right. Well, we will uh, continue to to follow along and see what happens next with this. Uh, Terry Allen, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about it. Well, and thank you for listening.